Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week on the show, we are doing a little bit of a rapid response to something we didn't anticipate starting the week off with, and that is a uh, Supreme Court opinion that just came down uh, Monday, March 8th this week. And so we had plans for what we were going to talk about in Capital Conversation, uh, but you'll just have to stay tuned and listen next week for a fascinating conversation with uh, our President Russell Moore on the ethics of the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, But for this week, we're going to go to the Supreme Court and we're going to talk about a really important case out of Georgia uh, that deals with free speech, religious liberty, college campuses, and a whole lot more as this case will have significant implications for all of those issues moving forward. Joining us on the podcast this week is uh, my co-host, as always, Travis Wusso and Chelsea Patterson-Sobolik, as well as our friend Casey Maddox. Casey is Vice President for Legal and Judicial Strategy at Americans for Prosperity, where he advocates for a legal system that respects the rule of law and protects individual liberty. For over 15 years before joining Americans for Prosperity, Casey's legal career focused on defending the First Amendment rights of students, faculty, families, healthcare workers, and religious organizations. He has litigated in 35 states and also testified three times before congressional committees. Casey has a JD from Boston College School of Law, as well as a bachelor's in government and history from the University of Virginia. You can find him on Twitter at Casey Maddox, M-A-T-T-O-X. Casey, welcome. Uh, Welcome back to the Capital Conversations Roundtable. Hey, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I will say you you won't find me on Twitter until after Lent. Uh, I gave it up. I also kind of feel bad about the fact that I'm preventing people from hearing from from Dr. Moore. Um, seems like that's, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm uh, depriving them of a much more effective voice in the public square, but, uh, no, it's not but your, hopefully it's... this will still be a, a good conversation nonetheless. <laughs> it will be a good conversation. I assure, I assure all of our listeners, Casey is, uh, dis- despite his humility there in that, in that uh, intro, uh, he is a, just an, a terrific advocate for these issues in the public square. And when this case came down yesterday, you know, it's one of those. It's one of those things. As uh, as advocates before the Supreme Court, you never really know when the justices are just going to ruin a Monday or a weekend. And with COVID and religious liberty cases, they were getting real used to that Friday night midnight uh, case drop. So no, we're we're excited to to have you on and to talk about this. Uh, Travis Chelsea, uh, once again, our team responded to a Supreme Court case. Uh, lots of resources up on our website. I'm excited to uh, dive into all of it with y'all. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Casey, thanks for being on and uh, looking forward to diving into the case. Um, It's good to be back with you guys. Casey, let's jump into this case. The case is styled Uzabunam v. Prashevsky. And uh, this, like I said in the intro, it's a case dealing with a college student's free speech rights on his Georgia college campus. Uh, He sued the school after it prevented him from expressing some religious views in a free speech zone on campus. So if you could, Casey, give us a highlight of the particulars this student's case uh, and what the Supreme Court was tasked with deciding. Absolutely. So 
It's it's really an incredible set of facts um, that are, are laid out just in the, the first few pages of the of the court's decision uh, that sort of exemplify a lot of the problems that we see on university campuses with student speech issues. Um, it's almost sort of like uh, difficult to believe that this all happened to one kid. Um, but Chike was, uh, he became a believer um, just a few years before the events here and decided he uh, wanted to share his faith with others. And so he went to a plaza area that was right outside a library on campus at Georgia Gwinnett College where a lot of students would gather. And he started talking about his faith uh, and distributing literature there. So an officer came over and told him he wasn't permitted to do that because uh, he could only distribute religious literature in the free speech zone and that you needed prior permission to use the free speech zone. So Chike complied with that order, went and got his permission to speak in the free speech zone, which turned out to be one sort of plaza area near a uh, the cafeteria that was 0.0015% of the entire campus. That was the area you were permitted to uh, to engage in religious speech. But there was another qualification on that. And that rule was that you, even with your permit in hand to use the free speech zone, you were not permitted to engage in speech that disturbed the peace and tranquility of other people. So Chike goes out, starts speaking, and within about 20 minutes of using his permit in this tiny free speech zone, he's stopped by uh, another person on campus, uh, another officer on campus who tells him that uh, he has now disturbed the peace and tranquility of other people and will have to stop. And so that's basically how the case sets up. So I was involved originally when I was uh, at ADF in, in filing the, the lawsuit. Uh, we sued the university over the, the free speech policies and the actions that, um, you know, pursuant to those policies to prevent Chike from, uh, from engaging in his free speech on campus. Uh, the initial response from the state as the Supreme Court notes was to sort of double down. They argued that this was perfectly appropriate. And as a matter of fact, said uh, in a, a filing that stunned us when we saw it, that religious speech on a college campus was, quote, tantamount to fighting words, uh, which means that basically it's not really protected because it can uh, upset people so much that it's too dangerous to allow this kind of speech on, on campus. And so that was their initial filing. A few weeks later, they decided to withdraw that filing and then filed another motion because they decided they were actually going to change their policies. And that's typical of how these university free speech cases uh, tend to go. You have students whose rights are violated for uh, weeks, months at a time. Uh, and then at some point further down the road, the school starts to begin to change some of its policies, oftentimes even after the student has, has left the school. Uh, or they will, will simply just wait the student out. And when the student leaves the university, then the school is, uh, is able to argue that, well, there's nothing here for the court to do anymore because uh, the student is gone. So that's sort of how this case was, was playing out. The university, uh, as Chike graduated, argued that, look, we've fixed the policy and now there's nothing else uh, to do here anymore because we, we promise we won't do this again. Uh, of course, that meant that you know, for about a, a year plus period, Chike was not able to actually engage in free speech on campus. So he he argued that, well, no, I, I still deserve a decision that my rights were violated during that period of time. Um, and so that, you know, the other people will be protected moving forward. Uh, we will have a definitive conclusion from a court that uh, my rights were violated. And so what you do, uh, 
you know, the, the challenge in cases like this is it's difficult to quantify what the, the damage is, right? I mean, on, on one hand, your First Amendment rights have been violated. Those are priceless freedoms, right? You, you've got a constitutional protection that has been violated here. On the other hand, exactly how much is that worth, right? What's the dollar value you assign to that? In some cases, you know, you would have flyers printed or something that you couldn't use and you can, we didn't really have that here. Um, and so what you do is you plead nominal damages, which is you, you ask the court, give us a dollar for the violation of our rights. We can't, you know, justify a particular amount of actual damages um, of things that happened. Uh, the real violation is the violation of his rights. So you ask for a dollar. And that's really what this case, the sort of ultimate technical legal question that the Supreme Court uh, was asked to decide. Uh, Georgia argued and the 11th Circuit decided that, you know, after the student has graduated, if all you have is this $1 claim for nominal damages for violating your rights, then the court can't decide the case. And the Supreme Court yesterday decided that, uh, that that's not true, that uh, the court actually does have the ability. You have the standing to bring a case to court. Your rights have been violated, even if you can't quantify an economic uh, amount of injury flowing from that violation. Casey, so we're going to get into some more of the the details of this case and what this means moving forward. But first, I want to zoom out um, and just ask you um, about free speech on college campuses kind of writ large. I know you've done a lot of this work, and we're so very grateful for the work you've done on, on behalf of so many regarding uh, free speech on college campuses. But can you just kind of give us an overview of um, kind of the current state of play of free speech on college campuses, what, you know, maybe some of the threats are and some ongoing legal opportunities. Absolutely. So, you know, I think one thing I always point out to people is that from a legal standpoint, free speech has never been more protected than it is right now. You know, there have been the last 40 years or so, the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent in protecting First Amendment rights. And so, you know, that's overall a big plus. One challenge we've had there is in the context of campus speech, it has been difficult to get the same sort of progress in the university context, clarifying some of the First Amendment um, issues that are, that are happening on campus that we've been able to clarify in other parts of life. Part of the reason for that is this, the challenges like, you know, uh, every student on a university campus is there for a very short period of time and trying to get those cases resolved before the student graduates and the case goes away. And um, and, and frankly, the ability of, of universities to change their policies at some point during the process um, has made it much more difficult to actually get resolution of some of these questions that frankly would actually prevent future litigation, right? If uh, you know, part of what leads to so many lawsuits in, on university free speech cases is that you never quite get to the, you know, to the legal heart of the matter. Um, is it permissible for a university to say you can speak in this part of the campus, you can't speak in this part of the campus, or you can say these words, but you can't say these words? And you know, everyone seems to, at least First Amendment advocates, have a pretty clear view about what the answer is. But it's much more challenging to point to the cases that have arisen on university campuses where those questions have really been decided. And so cases like this, while they they seem like these technical um, questions are really critical for helping to to ensure that, you know, when a student's rights are violated on a university campus, you can litigate the question, 
get it resolved, and it then sort of puts everyone on notice. We know what the rules are, and universities can act accordingly. So, uh, you know, I think this is a, a significant step in uh, trying to make it much more possible for us to, to advance First Amendment rights and clarify them on university campuses. So do you anticipate that this Supreme Court decision, which was eight to one, which pretty good decision there. Do you anticipate that this will essentially put college campuses and universities on notice um, and basically ensure that they get it right before it ever has to go to court? Or or what do you anticipate it'll look like moving forward? Yeah, I mean, that's my hope. My hope is that, you know, a lot of these issues can be resolved if universities, I mean, without lawsuits being necessary, if universities are sort of uh, properly incentivized. It's all about incentives, right? If, if you're a university and you know that whenever someone sues, you're always going to be able to sort of test the case in the courts and find out how the what the direction of the law is, find out who your judge is, what the judge is thinking, and sort of test that along. And then eventually you can always change the policy later on. Sort of creates, I'm saying, not saying universities sort of necessarily intentionally walk in with that mindset, but you don't have the same incentive that you do if you are anyone else who knows that, well, if I'm sued, if I think that I got this wrong, I want to get this fixed as soon as possible, right? Um, universities aren't really in that uh, in that position and, and ultimately uh, aren't really incentivized to try to fix the problems on the front side so that they don't arise in the first place. And so, I, you know, I think it's uh, that's where litigation can be helpful, not just in making sure that people like Chike are protected in their rights, but making sure that all of the students who come after them uh, are on university campuses where the universities are incentivized to make sure that they're figuring out the First Amendment questions and getting them right on the front side. Casey, were you, were you surprised that this case came down um, 8-1? Were you surprised it was such a such a strong majority? You know, I was hopeful going in. I, I mean, this has been the rule that a lot of circuits uh, have, uh, and the 11th Circuit was sort of uh, out of step here. Um, it's And it's difficult to tell you know, when in COVID, it's difficult to, to uh, really get a good indication of where the court's going to go when you listen on uh, listen to the oral arguments because right, you can't uh, you can't see their reactions, their body language. That's right, you can't see their faces, and also because every justice is asking questions. Right, normally you can you get some indication from who's most animated, who's making a point of asking questions. Um, you can't really tell that. In, in COVID because every justice is asking the same number of questions. They all have sort of a system they follow. Um, Including Justice Thomas, which that's has exactly been a right. quite large departure from his tradition. That's right. So you, you don't know, is Justice Thomas so animated about this topic that he, you know, sort of broke his normal pattern and is asking a question? Or is he asking a question because the chief told him, hey, everybody's supposed to ask a question and we're going to go in order, right? Um, <laughs> right. And you don't know. If, is, is this the one where, you know, he woke up and this was the thing that was he was passionate about, in which case, that you know, that makes a difference. So it's it's difficult to to be able to get that sense listening um, to arguments here. But, you know, I mean, what's really interesting about the 8-1 split is that this is the first case in which uh, Chief Justice Roberts has dissented alone at the Supreme Court. Ever. Um, the first case he's ever written a, a solo dissent. The first solo dissent. As a matter of fact, he even he even makes a joke about uh, about that in his dissent. He has a, a line in there where he's he's talking about this one 1800s case and noting that the uh, 
the opinion that the majority is is relying on was a solo dissent, and then he he adds a, a parenthetical, no shame there, um, <laughs> and so he's sort of self aware of the fact that this is you know he's he's alone uh, as the one in this case. Um, so, well, talk talk to us a little bit about Robert's dissent. I mean, what was the chief worried about in this case, and you know, are you sympathetic to the concerns that he raised? Do you think there are you know do you think there's something to that? How, how do you what do you what do you make of his dissent? You know, I, I think ultimately, here, the, basically what the Chief Justice is saying is that uh, courts should not have jurisdiction to decide cases where um, there's really nothing at stake, right? That's kind of the, uh, in a nutshell, that's what he's saying. And there is some force to that idea that you want to make sure that courts are limited in the decisions they can they can render. Um when I was practicing, though, and this is what I think is the kind of at the, the core philosophical distinction between the majority and the chief. When I was practicing and I would have a First Amendment case and I'd walk into a, a federal court, even more than, you know, who appointed the judge, that often litigants will look to those questions. Is this a Bush appointee? Is this a, an Obama appointee? Whatever. Um, try to get an indication of what they're walking into. The, the real question for me was, uh, like, the, the real split on the courts was, is this someone who sees constitutional First Amendment cases as the reason they are on the bench? Or is it someone who sees them as an annoyance because uh, <laughs> they are, um, you know, they tend to be small dollar cases, right? If you have a student who is told you have to turn your T-shirt on inside out because it has, uh, you know, uh, religious language on it or disrespect of the flag or whatever the issue is, if you have universe or if you have a uh, a judge who looks at that case and sees that as, uh, and, I, and I would have judges on both sides of the ideological spectrum who looked at those cases and the sense you got from them, you know, whether they agreed with me or not, was this is why I'm a judge, right? You you were bringing me a First Amendment case. I'm excited about this. And then you had other uh, judges who the, the strong sense that you got was I've got a billion dollar merger. Um, that is coming in right after this. And you were arguing to me about a kid turning his t-shirt on inside out. And it's just a very different, you know, uh, perspective on what is the role of the courts? Are they here to vindicate rights? Uh, and, and fundamentally, I think it's about what's the government supposed to do? I mean, my perspective on the whole reason government exists is sort of framed by the Declaration of Independence, right? So it's protect life and liberty and property, ensure equal rights, that's your job. Uh, and the courts are supposed to be doing that. The courts are supposed to exist for the purpose of ensuring equal rights. Um, and you either perceive of it that way or you perceive of it, you know, I'm not saying that the, the chief necessarily was uh, sort of belittling First Amendment rights, but there is kind of the sense in his dissent that I think he has this line at the end about arguing over farthings um, and that being sufficient you know, to, to trigger the jurisdiction of a federal court. And I would just argue that they're not arguing over farthings. They're arguing over First Amendment freedoms, right? Um, it's, if it was a billion dollars, it's not as important as your ability to express yourself freely in the public square. That's fundamental and critical to what courts are there to accomplish. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of the, the fundamental clash uh, of perspectives between the majority opinion and the chief. So, Travis, let me uh, let me interrupt here and ask uh, both you and Casey to give our listeners uh, a preview of the arguments that we 
that we submitted to the court through our amicus brief. So both ERLC uh, submitted a brief with a coalition of, uh, of religious institutions. Uh, and then and then Casey AFP submitted a brief with an interesting coalition of First Amendment advocates. So uh, Travis, why don't you go first and then and then Casey, what what was our argument? Uh, and then what was AFP's argument before the court? Yeah, so we we joined a brief that uh, with a, a couple of other uh, religious organizations with U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops as well as the National Association of Evangelicals, and our brief in this in this case really just went to the went to the merits of the of of what what was at stake here, and we argued that uh, nominal damages are necessary to uh, to protect free speech. Our brief also gets into a little bit of the history. It's a you know Justice Thomas opinion, so no surprise that he spends uh, quite a lot of time talking about English common law and and so on in his uh, uh, in his opinion. Our brief gets into to some of that history as well. You know, and and then and then we you know sort of getting to the um, to the point that Casey was making just a minute ago about the split between uh, the chief justice and and the other eight uh, justices on the court. We we were we we tried to address uh, in our brief um, uh, head off some of the concerns that that this expansion of the concept of standing uh, would have. That you know to to argue that it's you know this really is consistent with Supreme Court modern standing doctrine. Um, and that it isn't going to uh, lead to the sort of parade of horribles uh, that the chief alluded to in his dissent. And then, Casey, what about what about AFP? And, and uh, tell us who else was uh, was in that coalition on your brief. Absolutely. So, yeah, it is an interesting coalition. Uh, it's, it's the ACLU, uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation, uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and the Institute for Justice, uh, who joined together on a brief. And, you know, the basic argument was that sort of this point I was making earlier, nominal damages are sort of necessary to vindicate First Amendment freedoms um, and constitutional freedoms generally. And, you know, they're, they're sort of not a uh, consolation prize. They are, are actually necessary to make sure that the courts are able to decide those cases and vindicate people's freedoms. Um, but then we also talked a lot about some of the specific cases in which uh, they have been critical um, across the the spectrum and affecting a lot of different First Amendment freedoms, uh, or actually broader constitutional freedoms, and then you know we we talk a little bit too about some of the the other kind of collateral effects here. Uh, I suspect a lot of the listeners, uh, frequent listeners, are probably aware of the you know issues like qualified immunity, right? Um, well, qualified immunity, which you know has come up in sort of the policing context and some of those questions, uh, is really a question of whether you're your rights were so clearly determined that the government officials, when they violated them, should have known. Well, if you're not able to get final decisions in some of these cases and clarify what those rights are for future uh, government actors, whether they're police or university officials or whoever, then it's much more difficult under a system of qualified immunity to actually know what those rights are. And so they sort of compound. I'm not a fan of qualified immunity generally, but if you're going to have qualified immunity, you need to at least make it easy for courts to be able to make decisions that clarify what those rights are, um, so that you know future police officers and other people can uh, 
adjust their behavior accordingly. What are what are some of the other implications of this, you know, this case? I mean, we were joking before we started about, you know, the generation of law students that are going to have to, you know, struggle with the pronunciation of this or pronunciation and spelling of this case on <laughs> on law school exams uh, uh, in the future. But but why why does this case matter? Who who is this going to help? Yeah, you know, I think it will be a challenge for future law students. Although it, at least it makes it easy to remember, right? You're not going to get it confused with that other. Uh, the other Uzabunum case or something, right? Right. Um, right. You know, I, I think uh, this is, it's really, it's frankly important uh, in the first place for, for university students because uh, these cases do tend to be uh, frequently the kinds of cases that are difficult to get resolution on. And for the reasons I talked about earlier, um, it's important to clarify those freedoms. Now, the, the second effect of that is that frankly, University free speech rights, uh, campus free speech is not just important for the campus, it's important for our culture because the people who leave those universities um, are going into a broader society where it's important that they have been educated in a, in a place that understands the importance of First Amendment freedoms and are uh, building that into them. So uh, there's kind of a broader societal impact even from that. But uh, there are a lot of cases like this where, you know, First Amendment rights, frankly, put, uh, are particularly tend to be the kinds of, of things where there are very often not economic damages that are associated with them. Uh, you know, you were uh, everything from the university student to the street preacher on the sidewalk, uh, the, the pro-life protester somewhere, um, you know, the protesters, uh, you know, for all sorts of causes over this past year, uh, where the, you may not be able to point to any economic damages, but you deserve uh, a decision about whether something had violated your rights or not. And so that that can actually help us to make sure that, that, that those problems aren't systemic, um, that we've addressed those issues moving forward and that people know what your, your rights are. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of implications for uh, how government should be responding to individuals and protecting their liberties moving forward coming out of this case. Well, Casey, this has uh, been very helpful uh, to our listeners who uh, try to keep up with Supreme Court decisions. So we appreciate you uh, making the time to to jump on Capital Conversations here uh, and talk about this case with us. I, I remember a few years ago at an event here in D.C. Uh, with uh, you and David French, uh, David said you were a solid B-plus follow on Twitter. And uh, I, I have to agree and then some. I think I'd, I think I'd even bump you up <laughs> to an A. Um, and as you said, you're, you're giving up Twitter for Lent, but right before that, you gave a list of you gave a list of hot takes, uh, of which some of my favorites, you think the designated hitter in baseball is an abomination. All carbonated beverages are Cokes. You have a you have a tweet in here about First Amendment decisions in need of overturning. Folks should go check that out at the top is Employment Division v. Smith. ERLC uh, agrees and would retweet that. Uh, but then maybe my favorite, barbecue is a noun, not a verb. Then you say, however, <laughs> North Carolina, in scare quotes, barbecue is an wow. expletive. Uh, which, uh, as Texans, Travis and I totally agree, uh, as a North Carolinian, Chelsea, probably not so much, but I loved that hot take. Uh, so Casey, why are you giving up, uh, Twitter for Lynn? You know, talk us through that decision. You're, you, you brighten my Twitter timeline, uh, but I'm always, you know, I'm always curious. Casey, uh, you're, you're one of the only bright spots on my Twitter that's timeline. Right. <laughs> that is so true. My Twitter that timeline is, so is largely a garbage fire. But. Right. Well, you know. 
this is a I, I, so first of all, I have uh, as a as a lifelong Southern Baptist, I have picked up from my Catholic friends the value of uh, of giving up something um, you know uh, that can help to sanctify me during Lent, uh, and so. I basically just sort of looked around and said, is, is Twitter actually uh, making me better? And I had a very difficult time answering yes to that question. Uh, and it, I think at least, you know, for, for short periods of time, I think, frankly, all of us need to, uh, you know, have some, some moments where you step away from social media. It can be very helpful, very beneficial in a lot of ways, and it can connect us with a lot of people. I enjoy it a lot. But you know, I, I want to intentionally use social media and not reflexively use it. And uh, so basically stepping away for, you know, for 40 days is a, a nice way to sort of reset myself so that, you know, I, I don't find myself reflexively uh, typing twitter.com into the into the search bar. Do you actually do that? Do you type twitter.com into the search bar and that's, use it? Well, I'm, I'm old. So <laughs> that's... Hold, yeah, hold up. That's but do a, you, you really do that? Well, You're not into the, the cert, not Not in... Well... I, I, I use both. www.creedthoughts.com kind of situation. That's right. Casey, I have to ask you, speaking of social media, have you read the uh, the article, uh, The Internet of Beefs by Venkatesh Rao? I have not. Oh, I'll have I to have send not. this to you. It, it may... It it basically was the death knell for me in Twitter. It's what helped, it's what helped me to break up. But um, but I'll, I'll send it to you. It might end up prolonging your fast. Well, I, I will say, you know, talking about fast, this is something that uh, that Chelsea has, uh, I think, uh, you know, made a part of her annual rhythms and annual social media fast that uh, that I, I really respect and has led a lot of us into to thinking about that. So that's cool. Well, well, Casey, thanks again uh, for sharing that, and thanks for uh, walking us through this Im- important case and all of its uh, all of its effects. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, for having me on. This has been fun. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show about this important Supreme Court case with our friend Casey Maddox, send a link to this podcast to a friend or a family member in your community or on your college campus who you know cares about college free speech and religious liberty issues as well. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening, whether it be Apple Podcast or Spotify or any of the other spots where you can find our show. Uh, Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, you can leave us a rating and a kind review. This really will help others find this show so they can join you and me, Travis, Chelsea, and our guests each week around this roundtable. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week. Thank you.